I'm Laura Farrar. This is Capital and Scott. The Southern Baptist Convention wrapped up its annual meeting last week in Anaheim, California. The meeting came weeks after the release of a bombshell report detailing years of sexual abuse within Southern Baptist churches and how top leadership worked to keep the abuse secret in efforts to avoid liability. Arkansas Democrat Gazette Religion Editor Frank Lockwood attended the convention last week, during which a native Arkansan was also elected president. Frank joins me today to talk about what happened at the Southern Baptist Convention and the ongoing ripple effects of the church's handling of sexual misconduct. So Frank, welcome back to the show. We had you on a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, the United Methodist Church and issues going on within that church over gay sort of rights and inclusion. So this week we have you on right after you've gotten off the plane pretty much from Anaheim, California, where you attended the Southern Baptist Convention there, their annual convention. Can you talk a little bit about what you did last week and what these conventions are, are usually like? Well, fair to say uh, gay rights, gay marriage, gay ministers was not a major topic of conversation at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. These are very different places. It was a gathering of more than 8,000, they call them messengers, delegates from all over the country, including 285 from Arkansas was the last count that I saw. And so they were electing a new president and they were having their own uh, issues to debate. Uh, They're just very different issues than the issues you might get at say a, a Methodist conference or a Episcopal church, Presbyterian, one of the mainline churches when they meet. So it was a five-day event. You have these messengers from around the country. Uh, are they somehow elected? They're, they're kind of also called, I guess, also would be the equivalent of some type of delegate, as you said. Are they appointed, elected to these this role, and they all come to do what for five days? Well, every church that is um, a cooperating member of the Southern Baptist Convention. They're they're giving to the church. They're helping with the missions projects. They're all entitled to send messengers to this particular meeting. And they have got uh, 47,000 churches across the country. So tons of people that can come. As far as how long the meeting goes, the meeting goes for a long time, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But the real work gets done on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Tuesday, they elect their president. Wednesday, they debate a lot of issues. The first couple of days are a lot more kind of prayer and preaching and those sorts of things. What made this year different, say, from previous years? And why did you decide to go cover it this time? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention is by far the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. And it's massively important, disproportionately uh, important in Arkansas. So if you're covering religion in Arkansas, you need to be there. That said, we had uh, three announced candidates, and all three of them had ties to Arkansas, so that was a good reason to go. Another reason was uh, they were going to be talking about this uh, sex abuse task force, and uh, one of the executive committee members that was right in the middle of deciding how to proceed with that is from Arkansas, Pastor Archie Mason uh, from Jonesboro, but also uh, a couple of the big people that resigned in protest over the way that the 
study was going to be conducted. Uh, one of them was uh, from Northwest Arkansas, Ronnie Floyd, former Southern Baptist Convention president and uh, pastor of the largest Southern Baptist uh, megachurch in Arkansas for years and years. So let's, before we dive into the leadership elections that happen and the Arkansas ties in particular this year, maybe even historically as well. The sex abuse scandal was a really big kind of bombshell that came out in May. It was done by a third party investigator. I just took a quick look at it. It was 280 some pages long, very detailed. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly this investigation is or was and its importance for the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, the reality is there's been a substantial amount of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, just like any other religious organization in the country and, quite frankly, almost any non-religious organization. This is a society-wide problem, and there's no immunity for Southern Baptist. The thing is, uh, Southern Baptist had not really uh, faced it, confronted it head on, and dealt with it in a major way. And so what happened is in 2019, the Houston Chronicle, uh, San Antonio Express News as well, did some of the work. Uh, they did their own investigation. If, if the church wouldn't do it, wouldn't release the information themselves, they would see what they could come up with. And they came up with hundreds of victims, hundreds of credibly accused ministers. And that really lit a fire. Uh, I think a lot of Baptists felt like, why should we have to rely on the secular news media to tell us what's going on in Southern Baptist churches? We, we want to know the truth, warts and all. We'll deal with it, but bring us the truth so we can, we can tackle it. And so that's a big part of what was going on here. So from my understanding, initially, or even maybe historically, a lot of the the victims of sexual abuse were somewhat ignored or hidden. The people who were accused were maybe protected. There was a lot of tension around this issue, I believe. You mentioned someone from Arkansas had resigned as well. What were some of the major sticking points with this investigation, just the scandals generally? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, but it's also in a lot of ways very decentralized. There's not a central organization that ordains, so there's not a central organization that can strip away ordination. And a lot, a lot of this work is done voluntarily, and nobody has to do it. So if a minister gets in trouble at one church and the church quietly lets him go away, People in other Baptist churches may have no way of knowing what went on. So they bring someone in, and I think the the assumption, and it's logical, you assume if someone's coming in from another church and they've pastored there, that um, you know they, they're upright, and the assumption is that they're trustworthy and, and honorable. Uh, and the problem is there's just no great system in place to raise red flags when you've got a predator that's in their midst. So during the convention, how was this investigation discussed and what happened? There were some resolutions surrounding it. Well, certainly. Last year in Nashville, Messenger said, we want an independent inquiry 
into how the church has handled sex abuse allegations. Have they been forward with them? Have they buried them? We want to know the details. Basically, what the messenger said is, we don't want a bunch of bureaucrats with veto power over how this investigation proceeds. We want it to be independent, and we want them to have access to everything. If that means waiving attorney-client privilege, we're telling you waive attorney-client privilege. Well, some of the folks that oversee the day-to-day work of the church were not terribly comfortable with that. I think I should explain. The Southern Baptist Convention, like I said, they do business two days a year. In between, they have something, an executive committee that oversees things. And they do the day-to-day, everything going on the, the other days of the year. And people on the executive committee were very uncomfortable, a lot of them, with waiving attorney-client privilege. And certainly the executive uh, chief executive officer, the president, Ronnie Floyd, and the uh, team of lawyers that the executive committee had, they all vigorously opposed waiving attorney-client privilege. And, um, you know, Southern Baptists believe that Jesus has created this church and the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But some of these folks on the executive committee seem to think that while the gates of hell might not prevail, they were worried that maybe the trial lawyers would. And so they were, you know, this could derail the church, this could destroy the church, all these kind of end-of-the-world warnings if this went forward. Well, a majority of the executive committee said, hey, this is what we've been told to do by the messengers. We're going to do it and let the chips fall where they may. And so they brought in this outside group. They did all the investigation. They looked at all the, the paperwork, and a lot of stuff came out that would not have come out without this waiver of attorney-client privilege. And the document that they came up with, it it had some ugly, ugly stuff. And one of the things that really came clear, became clear, was how much lawsuit avoidance and liability minimization was the priority. Some of the things that also came out, uh, victims, survivors would come out, and it was not portrayed as, do we do the right thing for the victim? It was you know, the kingdom of God is threatened if we let this go forward. Satan may triumph if souls will be lost. I mean, those were the kinds of uh, messages that were going out from some of the folks. And so you end up with these survivors who are saying, we want to protect victims. We want to make sure children are protected. Some of them were portraying them as enemies of the gospel, in cahoots with the devil. And so some of the stuff was um, pretty disturbing. And by the way, the third party that did the investigation, I just pulled it up in front of me, was Guidepost Solutions, uh, a Washington, D.C.-based, I guess, investigative type company. I recall reading some stuff from different Southern Baptist publications about the attorney-client privilege issue. Was it the narrow vote to waive it or to keep it in place? And when did the attorney-client privilege uh, become a a contentious issue to begin with? My understanding of it is that they had multiple votes. And I think the first time they voted not to waive it. And the issue was brought up on more than one occasion. The executive committee considered it over and over, eventually decided to go ahead and waive it. 
And that resulted in a bunch of resignations. People stepping away saying, well, we're washing our hands of this. The, you know, the consequences are on you, not on us. So what, and also, by the way, did some of the abuse that was uncovered in this investigation actually trickle down to minors as well? Was it not just adults who were being sort of exploited by ministers or pastors within the church? Do you know any of the details of the range of, I guess, both maybe women and men as well who were in- involved? You know, most of the victimizers were men. The age of victims ranged. I think we had one in Arkansas where the the victim had been three years old. We talked about that in the case. I think the church was Texarkana, and a minister's wife came upon the min- another minister sexually abusing a child and reported it. You know, it's all there in the in the court records. A lot of this stuff was right there in newspaper clippings, was right there in court files. It did not take a lot of heavy lifting to come up with this information. So what happens now? The report came out in May. We just had the convention in June. There were some resolutions that were voted on related to sexual abuse and how to manage it, I guess, going forward. Reading some of the media coverage of it, it didn't seem like people thought it was particularly enough, but there was some at least relief that something was done. What's changed since Anaheim last week, and what do you expect to happen next? I think there is a mindset uh, that has shifted over the past year, certainly the past decade. Uh, The people that are in there in control now were absolutely horrified by what the report showed. And they've made clear that this has to stop and we have to make it a priority. And we can't do calculations with, well, let's talk to the attorneys and if the attorneys say it's okay, let's do the right thing. They're very much of the mindset of, let's take whatever steps we have to do. Uh, Let's deal with it, whatever consequences come along and let's do the right thing. Do you think that's been surprising? My hunch is that a majority of Southern Baptists wanted to do the right thing all the way along. I think if you talk to average people in the pews, they want to protect kids. <laughs> they have kids. Uh, the thought of children being hurt is, is repulsive to them uh, on a moral level, legal level, spiritual level. But you had this clique of attorneys and it was really a, it was a legal strategy, not a moral strategy, not a gospel strategy. And it did arguably grave harm to the church, to the witness, to the children. It was just a disaster. Do you think there was a concern, though, that if they didn't take action, they would risk losing members? Because there's some 13 million members, church members of the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States was that a factor as well? I don't know what kind of hit the Catholic Church underwent when their sexual abuse scandals started coming out with priests and predominantly men and boys. I'm sure it maybe had some type of impact, but do you think that weighed on people as well? Well, the the church peaked membership-wise in 2006. I think it was 16.3 million. It's fallen now into 13.7 million, it's got a downward uh, trajectory. People that opposed this kind of database said that it was irresponsible from a fiduciary standpoint 
we were putting the finances of the church at risk improperly. What people on the other side have said is, this is the moral thing to do, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the fiduciarily responsible thing to do. That long-term, if you're a church that people can't trust, if you're a church where children aren't gonna be safe, short-term, you may save a few dollars, but you're going to bankrupt yourself morally, and you're gonna drive away future attendees and givers, and the, the damage could be irreparable. So they said, this is the right thing to do in the eyes of God, and it ought to be the right thing to do in the eyes of accountants, business managers, lawyers, and insurance agents, you know? So on June 14th, I just pulled up one of your clips from the conference. They did vote overwhelmingly to have this so-called ministry check database, which you wrote will include ministers, denominational employees, church workers, and volunteers who um, have been credibly accused of sexual abuse. And then there also will be the creation of a new abuse reform implementation task force to help oversee and sort of implement these recommendations. Am I missing something else? Is there something else they voted on last week? Any other type of resolutions surrounding internal changes to try to combat this issue? Well, they had a resolution apologizing to the victims, and they named, I believe, 10 of them by name. They asked those victims, those survivors, for permission to do so. And they said, look, you've been pleading with us for a very long time to do the right thing. And rather than listening to you, we vilified you, and uh, we apologize. We were wrong. And so this task force that comes along I'm sure they'll be doing all kinds of, of work over the next year to try to fine-tune things, to try to set up a system that, that works properly. And um, they have set aside a few million dollars, I think three or four million dollars. And I think they got it from a third party, so that's not money. You know, we're taking money away from the missionaries and putting it in this. I think they found another way to, um, to do that. But this is far from, from over, and I'm sure we'll be hearing about this in the next year. One of the things that was very interesting, the organization that ran the investigation had a Gay Pride Month tweet or Facebook post or that sort of thing, and it was just like throwing a, a stick of dynamite into the mix because it gave some Baptists an opportunity to say, oh, this isn't about whether you think we need to do something firm and, and decisive against sexual abuse. This is about weeding out a company that has values that are contrary to the gospel. And so actually that point came up and the folks that backed the, the uh, taking aggressive steps, they said, yeah, 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 you know, we don't like that that tweet, we don't like that message, but it doesn't change the fact that the information they've come up with is solid. And they even said, look, in the Bible, sometimes God uses non-Christians. Sometimes God uses people that don't have the values of the church to bring the church to account for its own sin. And this is one of those examples. So June obviously was Gay Pride Month. And I guess not to have to spell it out, but the Southern Baptist Convention blatantly has an interpretation of the Bible or 
or gospel or whatnot that just does not believe in gay marriage. They don't believe in homosexuality. It just is very contrary to their interpretation of Christianity. Would yes. you say that's a good summary of it? I, I would say uh, if you want to be kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention quickly, uh, there are a few ways to do that. One is to uh, perform gay marriages. One is to ordain gay ministers. Of course, the other one is to appoint uh, women pastors. That's another third rail. So, We'll be right back with more Capital and Scott. Hi, this is Laura Farrar. The stories we dive into on Capitol and Scott are just a fraction of the reporting the Democrat Gazette brings to readers every day. If you'd like to support our commitment to bringing you the latest in Arkansas news, sports, and entertainment, consider subscribing to the Democrat Gazette. With your subscription, you'll get a digital edition of the newspaper every morning, along with the latest news and updates delivered to you on an iPad provided at no extra cost. For just $34 a month, you'll get the same award-winning journalism you've come to expect from the Democrat Gazette, plus exclusive photo galleries, videos, articles, and digital extras like this podcast, all in the palm of your hand. To sign up today, call 1-800-482-1121 or visit us online at arkansasonline.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to Capital and Scott. Well, speaking of appointments, we'll kind of switch over to elections. We have, uh, there, there is a new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Bart Barber, who is native to Arkansas. I believe he lives now in Texas, correct me if I'm wrong. Can you talk a little bit about him and the significance of this, this role? Well, uh, Bart Barber is at Farmersville First Baptist Church, and I got out the map, I got out the Google, and um, I think it's about 40 miles northeast of downtown Dallas. It's a small church. Uh, a lot of times this position goes to a megachurch pastor, somebody with their own TV ministry or that sort of thing. Uh, he's a small town minister, but uh, has served faithfully. He started out here, uh, had the, you know, step forward at the altar at age five at a church near uh, Lake City. Started preaching when he was in high school. And interestingly enough, the skill that may have helped him the most is he was in an FFA. And uh, FFA, they don't teach the gospel, but they do teach parliamentary procedure. FFA being? Future Farmers of America. F of course, right. Yes. And I think he has a farm of his own now. I think he grows some, has some cattle and that sort of thing. But it was pretty clear that um, his knowledge of uh, parliamentary procedure and probably his knowledge of public speaking that he gained from FFA has been a tremendous benefit for him and will be in this position, no doubt. How does one get elected? Is, are they, do they announce beforehand they're running for office, so to speak? How does this process work? Normally what happens is someone says, I'm going to nominate uh, Brother Bart Barber to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Usually there's kind of a you don't want to look like you're too eager to have the position, like you're out there campaigning for it. So normally someone will say, yeah, I'm going to nominate him. And, you know, the person will say, you know, if I'm called, then, you know, I'm willing to serve and that sort of thing. In this role, what, what do they have to, and how, first of all, how long do you serve? Generally, is it a year? It's a one-year term. So they'll come back in New Orleans in a year. And typically, 
a president runs for re-election serves two terms. So unless something blows up, unless there's trouble or difficulty, or they just get flat worn out by the challenges of the job, usually they're back another year. And just for people to know, next year at the Southern Baptist Convention will be in New Orleans. What else will BART have to do? Uh, just, I guess, how important of a role is this in the context of other, the executive committee leadership within the Southern Baptist Church? What is he expected to do over the next 12 months? Well, I believe he'll serve on the executive committee now. He'll be a, a speaker that's in demand. You know, the 47,000 churches and probably 46,999 of them would like to have him come speak. So he'll get more speaking invitations than he has time to do. Uh, he also will be appointing people, as I understand it. So this new sex abuse task force, the presidential race was huge because if you chose a president that wanted to throw a wrench into things, boy, that's the way to do it. So he will pick people to serve on that task force. That'll be one of the most important things he does. But my understanding is he'll appoint for all different sorts of church boards and whatnot. That in the long run is what really matters. That's probably the most important task. You mentioned before we started recording about a little bit of the history of the convention. Can you briefly talk about that? Has this been happening for a long time? Has it changed over the years? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention, for a long time, it, it formed uh, antebellum, a split over the issue of slavery back, I think, in the 1940s. And, uh, you know, for a very long time, it was a Southern-based organization. I mean, I think up until 1950, every single annual meeting was either in a Southern state or a border state. I think 1950, they finally went to Chicago, and it's around that time that they really become a, a national church. They see their vision as, as bigger than the South. This is, we're going to take the gospel to every corner of this country. You know, there was a time when it was small enough that they would meet in Hot Springs. I think they met in Hot Springs three times. And it used to be you'd have you know a few hundred people and then a few thousand people, but it grew and grew and grew. By the late 70s, early 80s, you started to have these doctrinal face-offs. They called some called it the battle for the Bible, and you had conventions where you had you know ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand. I think there was one in San Antonio where they had forty thousand people. So you had um, enormous face-offs at these annual meetings, and you know it was it was conservatives versus more conservatives, but that kind of trailed off in, in the eighties, and since then you've seen attendance at these things drop quite a bit. But uh, with membership dropping, with some of the challenges that the church is seeing now, I think, I think there's probably some soul searching going on of, you know, how many of these problems are demographic? How many of these problems indicate that we've lost our way in, in some form or fashion? You know, are, are we losing people because families are smaller? Are we losing people because the church is aging? Or are we losing people because We've stopped spreading the gospel the way that we need to. And so those are some pretty important issues I'm sure they're going to be looking at. You get that many church people in, in a room, you're going to bound to have uh, issues you can debate and issues you can argue. One of the ones, though, that's really come up is ordination of, of women. The position in the Southern Baptist Convention is near unanimous that 
men are supposed to be the senior pastors. And the Baptist faith and message makes that clear, that the position of pastor is a position for that God has set aside for men. Problem is, what if you're dealing with a youth pastor or a children's pastor or a pastor of visitation, you know, someone who's assigned to go around and visit uh, senior citizens at nursing homes and whatnot. When we say no women pastors, do we mean that word can't be associated with any of them? Or do we really mean you're not supposed to be up there on Sunday morning preaching? I think Mark Twain one t time said that, you know, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. And I think some of the people in this battle are saying, ah, there's a big difference between children's pastor and pastor, not the same thing. And others saying, nope, if you're using the word pastor, it should never, never be assigned to a woman, period. So that's one of the, the issues I'm sure they're going to be debating for a while. So what, what happens next? We have Barber in place as the new president. We've got the ongoing perhaps reforms surrounding sexual abuse. Is the Southern Baptist Convention really exposed to a lot of litigation right now because of this report that's come out? Has most of the litigation just already been done historically with these pastors who have been accused? They've gone to court, they've been punished, but it's been sort of buried to some degree. What do we know? Uh, what, do you, what do you project is going to happen? Well, that's that's one of the big questions. Um, we, we don't know. One of the warnings has been that you know, we could see class action lawsuits and all kinds of financial liability. And I think we won't know until we see more how things proceed. So it's it's a little bit early to say on that. It, the Baptists really are different from the, the Catholics and the Methodists um, because, you know, with, with the Catholics, the, the Pope's in charge. You can love the Catholics, you can dislike the Catholics, uh, but I think most people understand how the the hierarchy works, you know. Uh, and with the Methodist, um, you don't have a pope, but you got an awful lot of bishops. Same thing, a lot of these other denominations, you have a, a lead bishop or that sort of thing. But the Baptists are just really decentralized in a lot of ways. And let me tell you what, there's a lot of money. Those churches brought in 11 and a half billion, billion with a B, dollars in 2021. So if you're an attorney, wow. that's a big pot of money. And I'm sure there are some of them looking at it right now. When I was at the hotel, I came across a TV commercial. You know, if you've been injured by a member of the Mormon church, call lawyer so-and-so. He can help you win money. And you know, it may be that a year from now when we're in New Orleans, there may be commercials going, if you've been harmed by a Southern Baptist, call lawyer so-and-so. So that is a risk. That's very much a risk. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, Frank, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Oh, I should say one more thing, two more things. Sure. The first thing is, Barber won this election by about 60% of the vote. But this debate is far from over. This election was in California, and California Baptists are not the same as Mississippi Baptist. The place you live, the culture you're in, it makes a difference. There aren't, probably aren't going to be a thousand California Baptists when they meet in New Orleans. And so this debate is far from over, and who ends up being the winner and who ends up being the loser, we don't know yet. 
because this debate's far from settled. There are two sides that are, are very much have disagreements, and there will probably be many, many battles ahead. So that, that is one thing. And then I've really enjoyed covering the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I, I, I really enjoy covering Southern Baptist churches in Arkansas. But I realize there are people that are in these churches three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that know this stuff backwards and forwards. And um, so I would just like for folks to have my email address. If you've heard something on this that you think isn't quite right or there's a nuance that's being missed or a point that's being overlooked, I would just ask you to go ahead and send me an email. I want to hear from you. And also, um, if you know of any good religion stories, as long as it's got faith and Arkansas in the story, I'm going to be interested. So let me know if you think something could be said better, and let me know if you've got a story that you think ought to be in the paper. I, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thank you, Frank. We will include Frank's email in the description of Capital and Scott podcast, or you can find it by searching for him on ArkansasOnline.com as well. This has been great. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is fun. Thank you. All right. The executive summary of the 288-page report on sexual abuse says that for almost two decades, abuse survivors had contacted the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee to report instances of child molestation and other forms of abuse. The summary says their attempts to report the abuse were met, quote, time and time again with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility from some within the executive committee. Thanks for listening to Capital and Scott. We'll see you next time.